Thank you for downloading this podcast from our Tabar Gathering 2018. For more information on Tabar, please visit tabar-network.com. We hope you enjoy listening to this teaching. Thanks, Dave, so much. Are you okay? Great. Well, congratulations on coming to the most um, strangely titled seminar in world history. Um, I confess that when we, when we first came up with this, this language around apostomonasticism, I said to the guys, please, please, we can never use this publicly. It sounds so pretentious. It's ridiculous. Um, but I'm going to try and explain why I think it is incredibly helpful for um, each of us, both individually in our own uh, walks with the Lord and in leadership as we seek to develop healthy communities. Um, the apostolic impulse, as you know, the, 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 the um, Greek is apostos, and it means um, one who is sent with a message. And so your postman is an apostle, uh, you know, and, and we get weird about the apostolic. People have different views. Some say it was just, you know, the first followers of Jesus and some, you know, Pentecostal streams, anyone who's sort of the top of any kind of pyramid is an apostle. We're not really talking about it in those terms. We're talking about uh, the, the sense of being sent with the gospel. And um, so, uh, you know, under the sort of apostolic impulse, we're going to put evangelism. You know, we're going to put all kinds of social engagement and so on. I could carry on the list. It's, it's, this is an activist, uh, mobile um, pragmatist instinct. The monastic uh, impulse is rooted in the word monos. What does the word monos mean? Mono. One, on your own. Because the roots of monasticism were, you know, people, desert fathers growing big beards and going away and being on their own, leaving society. And so it is a solitary impulse where the apostolic is ascending into society, into culture, the monastic impulse is much more of a, of a withdrawing one. And so uh, this might be, um, you know, typically sort of contemplative expressions of prayer uh, would, would fit here. You know, meditation, you know, it's, it, it tends to be solitary and whatever. And um, in our sort of journey with 24-7 prayer, uh, we, we couldn't quite work out whether we wanted to be apostolic or monastic because part of us is like uh, we've been called to prayer. We want to push into prayer rooms. We want to counter God. We want to listen to God, you know, and, and all of that. But then there's another part of us going, yeah, but surely prayer propels us out into the streets to preach the gospel, to fight injustice, and to change the world. And, um, and, and we started to say, is it possible to fit these two impulses together? And actually, monasticism at its best, I want to suggest to you, isn't really monos at all. It isn't a withdrawing impulse. It is deeply engaged. If we look at Celtic monasticism, um, this was not people separating themselves from society. They were deeply prayerful, but they were engaged in education, in medicine, uh, in evangelism, and so on. And so even what we often call monasticism, unless we're talking about um, the closed monastic systems tended to have a strong apostolic impulse. On the other hand, um, you will all know 
uh, the, the, the sort of impulse in many, many Christians and Christian organizations, which is activist. It's deeply activist. Um, I, I suppose you, you, you could do Mary and Martha here, Mary at the feet of Jesus and Martha peeling the Brussels sprouts in the kitchen. And, and we all know um, that, that, that thing with us, we've got to plant churches and we've got to preach the gospel and we've got to fight human trafficking and we've got to change society and we've got to engage politically and we've got to start schools. And, and somewhere in the midst of it all, we probably ought to pray. You know, we, we, we probably ought to get a bit of, you know, God's Facebook-like and, and, and pray, but deeply it's like, let's burn out for Jesus. And there was something with us in terms of the apostolic thing and, and I, I'm naturally more veered towards this, even though I seem to travel around the world and everyone says, you're the prayer guy. I mean, it's, it's God's joke, because naturally I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an activist, I'm a pragmatist, I'm a strategist. And, and I realized in my own life, there's a danger that I could work so hard trying to save the world, trying to preach the kingdom of God, that I end up burning out, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. Hello? Irony? So I get people saved so that they too can then burn out, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, and then others get saved and they burn out proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. And at one, what point does someone blow a whistle and go, when does the heaven bit kick in? <laughs> do you know what I mean? When, does, when do we just celebrate what we've already got rather than desperately trying to always get to a future that hasn't yet quite come? And so we've got this interesting dance. I would suggest probably within each one of us here, Although some of us we naturally more withdraw and others naturally more engaged. Some of us naturally more mystical and some of us more naturally missional and so on. But there's this, there's this dance, there's this conversation between the apostolic and monastic impulses. And uh, that's why we ended up coming up with this absolutely ridiculous uh, language around aposto uh, monasticism. And, and uh, if nothing else, we want you to be able to leave this seminar and, and impress everyone wildly with this um, word that doesn't even exist that we have, uh, we, have, we have made up. One of the ways in which we understand this, and I'm going to try and earth it practically in a little bit, is, is around the very simple notion of, uh, of breathing. And uh, you'll have heard this metaphor before, but there isn't really a better one. We understand that the human body obviously has to breathe. And, and if you like, the monastic impulse is the, is the breathing in. It's the inhaling. It, it is, you know, how were you created? You were a fistful of dust and God breathed into you. You received the breath and you were animated. You came alive. And so uh, in, the, in the presence of God, we breathe in his ruach, his breath, his spirit. And then that inevitably, as you breathe in, it overflows and you breathe out. And so we start to breathe out the life of God, the breath of God, the spirit of God. And we, it looks like the, the fighting of injustice, the preaching of the gospel, the teaching of children and all sorts of other uh, apostolic outward engagement thrusts. And so we see this natural rhythm in our biology. And I believe it's a powerful picture of the way that the body of Christ is designed to work. So let's do this. Let's, uh, let's do this as a moment of sort of practical, prophetic prayer. Um, we're going to all just see who can hold their breath for the longest. And uh, the reason is, is and I'm not just trying to create a competition for the sake of those who like to win competitions. Uh, what I want you to do is notice that in just a moment when you start holding your breaths, notice how easy it is. By the way, we're about to create a competition out of something that you've all been doing naturally without even thinking. This is the way you're designed. But we're about to get intentional on it. So at the start, it's going to be super easy. And then 
by the time you finally <sighs> breathe out, you're going to probably be feeling some pain, many of you, in, in, in your lungs. It's like nothing will matter more than I just got to breathe. And, and, I want, and we're going to do this as a way of trying to explore and celebrate the fact that the monastic impulse naturally gives birth to the apostolic one. Inhaling naturally provokes us to exhale. And then exhaling, if you only ever exhale, you, you, you'll hyperventilate and fall over. It naturally makes us, so, so you have this relationship here. So the way we're going to do it, by the way, no cheating uh, on this. It's very easy to cheat and to secretly breathe. And if you do that, um, the Holy Spirit will leave the room. So uh, he will, God will see. So, so no cheating. But uh, we're just going to see, see this. And as I say, this isn't really a competition. This is more uh, I'm wanting you to, in the feeling of that pain, realize how deeply linked breathing in and breathing out is, how ridiculous it is that often in the way we do church, uh, the way that even entire denominations have been formed, we have separated these two natural impulses. So um, I'm going to send you marks to get set go. And when you, when you start uh, holding your breath, just raise your hand. And when you finally uh, give up, then just take your hand down. We'll see whose hand is up the longest. Is that okay? Yeah, it is kind of a competition. But, but as I say, no, no, no cheating. And like, literally, don't die. It's, it's, it, I'm going to say it's a good point. It's not the greatest point in world history. It's not worth dying over. Okay. Um, so, ready, steady, go. Currently, it looks like a Hitler youth rally. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. Feel, feel, feel that pressure increasing. Got about eight hands left. Jasper, stop trying to tickle. It's cheating. Pretty good. Two hands left, three hands left. <laughs> All you want, two hands left. All you're wanting to do. <laughs> Have you not breathed yet? Did you win? You understand, if you only breathe in, if you only just sort of you know, lost in wonder, love and praise. You only worship and pray. If you're, if you're always withdrawing, there's something deep within you that's of the Spirit of God that will just say, I've got to breathe this out. I've got to breathe this out. And, and, and um, 
The story I always use about this is, you know that principle of caught not taught. You know that thing, like if you're carrying something, people are going to catch it off you no matter what you speak about. If you teach and teach and teach, but you're not carrying it, they're not going to get it. And uh, so if I wanted to um, give you guys flu, and I uh, was carrying the flu virus, all I have to do is get close enough and breathe the same air as you, you're going to go with flu. It doesn't matter. We could talk about uh, Portsmouth Football Club, great thing to talk about. We could talk about anything. It doesn't, you will catch what I'm carrying. But equally, I want you to get flu. I might say flu is amazing. Flu is the best thing in the world. So what we're going to do is we're going to create this massive papier-mâché nose here uh, with these two nostrils. And we're going to get really small people dressed as bogeys in green who are going to somersault out of the nose and pretend to be a sneeze. Coming over here, we're going to choreograph this whole dance around a sneeze. Meanwhile, we're going to uh, get Foy Vance to stand here and sing a really emotional song about the beauty of having uh, flu. And then I'm going to put microscope slides up there showing you exactly what the flu virus looks like. And at the end, you go away knowing everything about flu, thinking flu is amazing, but you haven't got it. You just know lots about it. And we all know that the church is exactly like that. We equip people with so much knowledge about, but they're not necessarily carrying it. But when someone is carrying it, it spreads. Think of that godly old lady who walks with the Lord in such a way that even just 10 minutes with her, you feel your faith growing, right? So how do we cultivate this infection? I want to suggest it is something to do with people learning to breathe in the presence of God, the life of God, and then breathe it out in the world. And so the enemy will try and stop you praying. Anyone ever notice that any time you're like, I've got, to, I've got to get with God, I've got to, every single distraction in the world emerges. Like I, for me, it's like I suddenly decide I probably need to learn the guitar. You know, that's the world. Christendom needs another guitarist, right? And, um, you know, and, and, and the world, the flesh, and the devil will gang up to try and stop you we're drawing in prayer because it's where you get infected. And if, and, but if the enemy can't stop you praying, what he will then do is he will try and quarantine you. He will try and lock you up in, a, in Christian cuddles and holy huddles so that you never actually meaningfully engage with the world because <laughs> he knows you're infected with something. He doesn't want you breathing all over people. Does that make sense? And, and, and if we can help people to continually be refilled with the Spirit, recharged with God's presence, breathing in His Ruach, His life, and then we can help them to truly live in the world in a way that's engaged and close, breathing with people, breathing on people, we're going to find the virus spreads. And so there's this natural rhythm of breathing in, breathing out, that I believe is what the Lord has for us individually and as churches. And it may sound obvious, but I want to suggest to you that, that, that it's actually relatively rare for um, people to get this balance right. And it's something we need to think about a little bit more than we perhaps do. Now, um, my, my, my own journey with this, which I've touched on, and many of you will be familiar with, is that I was busy doing apostos, you know, planting churches, innovating. Uh, frankly, strategies were working. Uh, we were seeing good stuff happen. But as I said in the, in the plenary session earlier, I felt like uh, in my own spirituality and walk with the Lord, I felt incredibly shallow. And, and, and as the Lord called me into prayer, I had no idea that it was anything to do with creating a more balanced, healthy organism within. But 
as, and, and at that stage, I think if you'd asked me, I, I, I would have said I didn't really trust intercessors. These people who were so into prayer, I was so worried that they were super spiritual and they never actually did anything. And I used to think it's a bit rich that some of us out here are actually going and training leaders, fighting injustice, planning churches, and they try and take all the credit when all they've ever done is stood in a room and talked to the wall, you know. I mean, I'd never quite have admitted it like that, but that was some of what I thought. So I was very distrustful of people who prayed too much because I thought maybe they'll never do anything. And then I got hijacked because as we began to pray and to seek God, not just a little bit, but night and day for months, I found that all the apostos, all the stuff started to happen by seeking God and my paradigm started to get blown apart. What do I mean by that? Well, for example, um, a few days ago I saw a girl called Sam Beach. Sam got saved during our first prayer room and uh, the very next day after she got saved, she stepped into the prayer room and spent, I think it was three hours in prayer. In, in there, just talking to the God she'd only just met. And so we, we were all like, that's incredible. You've been a Christian less than 24 hours, and you just spent three hours in a prayer room. So she said, I, I just assumed that like, this is what Christians did. So we, we just lied. We're like, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> all around the world, night and day, we can't stop them, you know. And uh, so that was 18 years ago, and now she's got little kids she's raising in the faith. And, and so I started to watch people kind of getting discipled in the presence of God. I was like, oh, this is interesting. We started to find more evangelism was happening. Some of it's very natural. You go and spend an hour in the prayer and praying for your friends and your day at work. You then go into work. You're centered on Jesus. You're more likely to talk about Jesus. And, and so a lot of um, salvation was happening. Uh, I remember going to the prayer room, uh, that first one, and seeing this amazing piece of graffiti of a Bible verse on the wall that one of the teenagers had done. And I realized I could either patronize it and go, how nice the young people are doing some Christian graffiti, or go, mm, how long did that take? Probably three hours. Yeah, maybe four hours is pretty good and big bit of graffiti. So when did I last spend four hours meditating on one verse of scripture? So like my paradigms are getting blown apart. Way they're studying the Bible more. The new Christians are getting discipled. Evangelism happening. A fresh vision was getting hatched. One of the major psychologists in England today, it's like nationally significant. He said to me the other day, I was called into psychology in the, in, in the first prayer room. Uh, that's where God spoke to me. One of my closest friends was dating this girl. They were at that stage in the relationship. He clearly needed to propose, like the steam coming out the bonnet. You know that moment pastorally? And uh, you're like, dude, you've either got to like, break up or you've got to go. And he's, he's doing that male kind of commitment phobe moment, like, but she's not perfect. And I'm like, dude, look in the mirror. Come on, you know. <laughs> And, 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 and in fairness, he was wrestling with some very, very deep things within himself around commitment. And I only just found this out. His, his wife said to me, you do know that he spent um, three nights in a row in the prayer room, weeping and wrestling with God around his own inner fears and terror of making a commitment to another human being. And as he wrestled with God, he found breakthrough and victory, and he proposed to me. And now they've been married for whatever, 15 years, they've got a beautiful little girl. So stories getting rewritten is all we did was call people into the presence of God. So you understand how my paradigm started to get blown 
apart. And then, of course, I started to read the Bible in a different way, and I saw these patterns in the life of Jesus. Feeds the 5,000, and then, as I said earlier, withdraws to a lonely place. You know, seeks God, comes down from the mountain, walks on water, calls Peter to him, you know, crosses the lake, casts the demon out. It's in and out, in and out the whole time. Uh, And uh, so um, I was learning fast. We see this flow as well in um, the book of Acts so clearly. So Jesus gives the great commission, go into all the world, preach the gospel, you know all that stuff. And then he's go, but wait and pray. So they set up a 24-7 prayer room in Jerusalem, the upper room there. And they're in there, like reading the Bible, going, we're in the Bible. Holy cow, wrong religion, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. You're reading the Bible going, this stuff is being fulfilled. That's what Peter says in his great Pentecostal preach. And they're there, and they're knowing they've got this commission to go into all the world and to baptize all nations. And then the Spirit of God comes. They've withdrawn. It's a monos moment. They've withdrawn into the upper room. The Spirit of God comes down and propels them out into the street, and 3,000 get saved. Then they're leading a revival, and it's not just, you know, discipleship and evangelism, but it's caring for widows and orphans. And then we read uh, that they, they, they say, but it wouldn't be right. For, for us to neglect prayer and the study of the word to wait on tables. And so the apostles did the exact opposite of what most church leaders do and, and delegated out operational responsibility for leadership so they could keep their monastic uh, impulse of pushing into God's presence in prayer and scripture because they knew that was their priority. This is what Jesus had modeled to them. Where did Jesus get his revelation from? His time with the Father. Where did Jesus get his power from? Do a study on it sometime. Every time after he'd been up all night praying, he moved in greater power afterwards. Uh, You can go right the way through. So even Jesus, if anyone, by the way, ever had the justification to go, do you know what? Everything's prayer for me. When I drink a cup of water, it is prayer. It was Jesus, right? He, he could really have played that card. But, uh, but you're going to struggle to ever find anyone who pushed into time alone with the Father more than Jesus Christ. If anyone say, I'm a bit tired for an all night of prayer, you know, Jesus had three years to save the planet. It was kind of a big job description. But he, and before every major decision, when he was in his darkest hours, Gethsemane and so on, you find him up at night praying. And so uh, the apostles had this model in Jesus. That's where the revelation comes from. That's where the power comes from. That's from where the strategy and energy comes from. And so they delegate the apostolic tasks of waiting on tables and all the rest of it in order to prioritize prayer and listening to God in the Scriptures. And then we see, uh, let's take Acts 6. You know, the, the, the religious rulers have said to Peter and John, uh, you've got to stop preaching the gospel or you're in trouble. These are the very same people who've just had Jesus crucified for saying and doing the wrong thing. So this is a pretty scary moment. And it says that Peter and John went to the church and immediately the church raised their voices, raised their hands and cried out to God. Sovereign God, they say. And then they begin to intercede. And it says at the end of that prayer time, so they're locked away praying, the room shook and and the gospel advanced. So again, the prayer gives birth to the next apostolic thrust. Then we fast forward a little bit more. Acts 10. Peter's gone to his next little prayer room on the roof in Joppa, having his quiet time, a little prayer time, three in the afternoon. And then, uh, then uh, this, this uh, blasphemous vision happens, right? 
all these non-kosher food items, animals come down on a blanket. And this voice that he might have thought was Satan says to him, kill and eat. Because that's the opposite of everything that he's ever been taught. And he realizes it's actually God. And he, and he goes, remember, the knock comes at the door and he goes to the centurion's house. As he preaches the gospel, they get filled with the Spirit. And in that moment, from the, the, the withdrawal in prayer on the roof in Joppa, the gospel jumps via that centurion into the entire Gentile world. My goodness, what a massive moment that is. But it comes not through an Excel spreadsheet, not through a strategy or a plan, but through the revelation that comes in the place of prayer. I'll do one more, but I mean, we could keep going. You know, uh, how did the gospel reach Europe? It was through a place of prayer. The apostle Paul is in Philippi, and he goes to the place of prayer, which happens to be by a river. He meets Lydia, tells her about Jesus, and that's the first person who becomes a follower of Jesus in all of Europe. And, and, And so you see, and you can see this right the way through church history. You see it with, you know, where did, where did the great Celtic saints of, the, uh, of Ireland come from? They, they pushed up from the desert fathers who were off being monastic in the Egyptian desert. And then they began to push out in mission north. And they ended up here where we were all still painting ourselves blue and running around naked and told us about Jesus. But the prayerful impulse into mission, you trace it again and again through history. The, mon- the monasteries of the Celts, as I said earlier, weren't really very monastic in that whilst they were strongly prayerful, they were also deeply engaged in social, cultural, and spiritual transformation to the extent they've, they've shaped our world to this day profoundly. Fast forward to our great heroes, the Moravians, who were there uh, in Hernhut. And Hernhut was, if you like, a giant monastery. They were literally praying night and day. And yet out of there, five years after they started praying nonstop, on the 27th of August, 1727, uh, five years after 1732, they sent out their first two evangelists from Hernhut. And that is the beginning of the great missions movement of the Reformation. It didn't come from Martin Luther. It didn't come from the seminaries. It came from refugees in a village called Hanhut who were praying a lot. And so they were the first to take the gospel to many nations. And, uh, um, and not least John Wesley. John Wesley got converted through some of those Moravian missionaries. And then what does John Wesley do when his heart is strangely warmed? He goes and gets discipled by the, the Moravians uh, and he, that's where Wesley, any of you Methodists, learned the class system from. And it's also where he understood you've got to pray night and day. He and Zinzendorf then fell out, as far as we can work out, over a dinner jacket. And uh, so church history gets written. And Wesley came back, but he's seen it amongst the Moravians. And so on the 31st of December, 1738, he calls his friends together in Fetter Lane, London, and says, we're going to pray all night. Monos, we're going to pray all night, because he's seen it in Hanhut. And then at three in the morning, he wrote in his journal later, the Spirit of God, His Majesty came, and they fall to the ground under the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's the beginning of the Great Awakening that changed the course of British history. And so we could trace that through. The, the, the Wesleyan thing, which then, of course, gave birth to William Booth and the Salvation Army, and jumped the Atlantic to um, Charles Finney and the next generation, the abolition of slavery, all of these things. It's the prayer giving birth to social engagement. So I want you to hear this. Whew. 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 
the breathing of the body in the book of Acts, in the life of Jesus, right the way down church history, this is the way it's designed to be. Let me just tell you a tiny bit of what this looks like practically in my own life and maybe in the life of the community that I try to lead. And then we're going to take some questions, comments, and allegations, okay? So, are there any questions so far, by the way? None of this is too controversial, right? Prayer and mission all go together. Okay. It's not. It's, it's, it's fundamental, and yet you, when you look around, you find everywhere seems to be divided and having a crisis between these two extremes. So... Um, I just want to talk, first of all, personal, and I'll talk corporate. So in my, in my own personal life, and I'm sure you'll have your own ways of doing this, I'm very intentional about trying to build rhythms of the seasons of prayerful withdrawal and then active engagement. And if any of you are foolish enough to follow me on social media or whatever, you actually only will see the stuff when I'm doing the public stuff, and then I kind of just go quiet, and you don't really notice that, okay? But, but there's very intentional seasons of withdrawal, and that is partly because I'm trying to have this rhythm in my own life. What does the withdrawal look like? Well, first of all, the Sabbath principle is absolutely critical for each one of us, a day off. You know, Rabbi Abraham Heschel points out, you know, based on the fact that on the seventh day God rested, which means, Walter Brueggemann said, that means that God is not a workaholic, uh, that the heart of the universe is, is a supremely rested being. Isn't that interesting? God is not ADHD. He's not anxious. And, and Rabbi Heschel says that whilst other religious um, views in the ancient world, were making objects, things, and places sacred. You know, this tree is sacred. We'll make this building, it'll be sacred. The Jews alone made time sacred. They hallowed time, the architecture of time. And so as followers of Jesus, we are called to recognize the sanctity of time and to worship him by regularly stopping trying to save the world um, stopping, you know, trying to impress other people and to be restored and restoried, to allow God to be God and not us. You know that verse that says, be still and know that I am God. The, 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 the word there uh, uh, for be still is, is, is uh, vacare, V-A-C-A-R-E. And it is the same word at root that we get vacation from. And so one Bible scholar has said, you could paraphrase, be still and know that I am God like this. Take a holiday from being God and let me be God instead. You get that? Just Sabbath is when we stop trying to like, you know, change the world, save the world, impress people. And we accept that God is eternal and we're not in one sense. That he's in charge and we're not, and we celebrate and enjoy and stop trying to make our mark on the world. And so we've got to work out our own Sabbath rhythms, obviously, in our own lives. Um, for me, 
I have an annual Sabbath rhythm as well. And that is, um, you know, and forgive me, as I say this, I'm aware that this isn't practically possible for some of you here. You know, it's, for me, it's part of the privilege of being called to full-time pastoral ministry. But I, I've done a deal. Every, you know, church I've pastored, I've, I've had to look at, you know, the, the chair of the trust or the board of elders or whatever in the eyes and say, you only get me if I have all of August off. And sometimes you get a pretty old-fashioned look, but I'm like, that's the deal. I insist on it because I'm going to be full on. That's the way I'm wired. But August is one of the times I get restored and recharged, and and even just the adrenaline in my blood system hasn't fully detoxed till at least two weeks into it. And and so August, you know, I, I, you know, I'll take some holiday. I'll read a lot. I'll, you know. I often do a lot of carpentry or do a big project on the house. I'm really excited this August. I'm going to build like a fire pit with a deck and with my sons who are already planning it. I'll work with my hands because so much of my work is about words and concepts and I find it incredibly restorative to do something with the other part of my brain. Um, I'll do a lot of fishing. Do you know, one August I caught myself. It was interesting. I was like, what do I do on Twitter right now? You know, because I can't just admit to people that all I've done is spent a month fishing and carpentry. <laughs> Jesus is like, that was 30 years of my life, pal. <laughs> you know, I, was like, I can't admit that's what I'm doing with a month of my life. It's not very spiritual. What is this paradigm you got drawn into? So forgive me, I know that some of you are saying, well, I'd love to do that, Pete, but I just can't because my job, I, I'm just being honest with you about my own situation. You'll have to work out what these rhythms look like. I have January to March, I do almost no travel, and I, I, I move into a far more contemplative season. Um, but like, you know, honestly, April to July, I'm pretty full on. Uh, I've done three festivals in the last two weeks and preached to 45,000 people and whatever else. You know, September to December is pretty full on. So I, I, I'm saying that because I'm, I'm working rhythms. I've realized it's neither sustainable nor enjoyable for me to be ADHD, you know, genetically modified, continually fruitful. By the way, you see these rhythms in creation. Isn't it extraordinary that... You know, the winter, what a third of the year, right? The world isn't very fruitful. God clearly doesn't want us to be equally fruitful the whole time. One of the most profound questions as church leaders you can ask yourself is, what season is my church in right now? Almost no church leaders seem to ask that question. Are you being called to be fruitful right now? If your church is grieving a terrific tragedy, just stop and enter winter. Don't take all pressure off yourself to do anything else, and so on. And so, um, I'll tell you one other thing I do. Now, you can all do this one. This is super easy in terms of developing some personal withdrawing rhythms. <laughs> this, is, this is fun. Every four to six weeks, I take a prayer day, okay? And, and, and I'm tempted to leave it there because then I can make you think I'm really spiritual. But let me tell you what my prayer day looks like, and you'll all be thinking... I'd like to do that, and I could do that. I'm just going to be really honest. So my prayer day, it's always blocked out in my, in my schedule. And, you know, if you read it, it's like, wow, he's praying today. I, I'll like, I, 
I'll, I won't leave the house particularly early. I, maybe I'll do the school run or whatever, maybe 10 a.m. I'll leave the house with our two dogs. We have Noodle, the Labradoodle, and we have uh, Crumble, who we don't know what she is. And, uh, and I'll walk a couple of hours to a nearby pub. Uh, and as I walk, I'll chat to God a bit. I'll work through some of the things that are on my heart and my mind. I'll kind of get a lot of stuff out. And sometimes I'll just be quiet. I'll get to the pub. If it's the winter, I'll sit by the fire in the pub. If it's the summer, I'll often sit outdoors. I'll read a really great Christian book, maybe two, three, four chapters. I'll journal a load. I'll have a pint of whatever seems appropriate. I'll eat a pie, and that'll be two, three hours. Not unpleasant. I'll then walk home a couple of hours, and I'll do almost no praying. On the way home, I will just be very deeply aware that God is with me. Uh, and I, I generally use very few words. I'm often thinking about things I've been journaling and reading, and so there's quite a lot of reflection there. You know, sometimes God loves it when we just shut up and just be with him, right? Just, just, just be with him beyond incessant talking. And so I get home, what is that, six hours later, and just raise your hand if you think, that sounds quite pleasant. I'd quite like to do that once in a while. Okay. So, and the great thing is you can write in your diary's prayer day and everyone will think you're so spiritual. <laughs> if that doesn't work for you, find out what does. Pray the way God made you. Spiritual disciplines are meant to be delightful. Anything that helps you get closer to Jesus, the enemy will try and stop you doing it. And you need to make a discipline of doing it. If getting up mountains helps you connect with God, the enemy will try and stop you doing it, and you need to make a discipline of, I'm going to climb mountains. You know, if listening to Wagner, standing on your head eating yogurt, helps you get close to Jesus, you'll, you'll be amazed how often the supermarket sold out of yogurt and Wagner isn't on Spotify. You know, make a discipline of anything that helps you get closer to Jesus. And so... Um, Obviously, we seek to build rhythms like Jesus of withdrawal and engagement, of, of prayer and then apostolic transformational um, engagement. But also, let's just think a little corporately. Now, I'm aware many of you here are church leaders, and, um, and you, by definition, you'll, you'll be leading different sized churches. Sammy and I have planted... Uh, I think it's five churches. And we know exactly what it's like to only have, you know, 20, 30 people in your church. No full-timers, no budget, okay? These principles work. And our current church is, I don't know, about 1,000 people or something now. And so this works at different levels. But um, when, you're, when you're smaller and a little more stretched in your resources, what you'll find is you have to do the rhythms of... Uh, of aposto monasticism like this. If this is, if this is aposto and this is monastic. In other words, there will be times, there will be seasons, cyclical patterns within your corporate life that are more withdrawing in prayer. It might be a season of running a 24-7 prayer room. 
Um, it, it might even be just a summer season of saying, you know, we're going to have a lot of barbecues and not too many meetings and just enjoy fellowship. And then seasons that are far more actively engaged. I don't know, it might be running an alpha course or uh, if you're in a university area, you know, October, September, October may be a really super busy time. And so you, Christmas, you know, for, for many of you will be a very busy time. And so you naturally plan your calendar through the year around these rhythms, realizing that the monastic side is equally legitimate to the times that look busier. It means that you cannot lead a community with your foot continually to the floor. The floor. That isn't good driving. That's bad driving, right? It may get you places quick, but it's not good driving. And, and, and so if we're going to create healthy rhythms, that will happen. Now, what, will, what you'll find is that uh, as your church grows and um, many of you will be leading larger churches here, you'll be able to develop and do both simultaneous. You'll have some people who are naturally more wired towards the outward engagement, the apostolic thing, some who are naturally more wired to the mystical, to prayer, to, to contemplation, to listening to the Lord, to deep pastoral study of Scripture, and so on. And, and so you can run these in parallel, and you can have both activities uh, in many manifestations running in parallel. And Funny enough, this even works with business. I was talking to a business leader at the end of the last seminar. He said, okay, what does this look like for my business? And, and I said, well, for example, if you were to um, uh, uh, take a particular focus around uh, certain projects that you're going to try and achieve in your business in the year, um, th- th- those, those can be your, your, your active, apostolic, frenetic times, and you galvanize all the staff around it, receptionists, right, right through to managers, everyone is like, we're going for this. But then you budget time, money, and everything else into celebrating the success of that project and, and saying, hey, why don't, hey, we're going to give you all some time in lieu. You've all got you know, a couple of days off this week. And what you're doing is you're, and the, and you're going to have highly motivated staff who say, we achieved some great things this year. And boy, our company looks after us well. So even some of these principles, which we see in creation of seasons, which we see in the life of Jesus, even if most of your staff aren't Christians, you can still build some of these natural principles in so that the, the organism of a business is breathing in and out, in and out. And, and at its worst, a business will be like a factory which dehumanizes people. So they're continually, there's, there's no ebb and flow. They just have to perform the same task every day, day in, day out. There's no, uh, there's no sense of breathing. It's kind of a death. And uh, so uh, I could go on, but but um, but 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 this th- these principles apply. And you may say, well, this is all logical and obvious. I suspect if I'd sat down with almost any of you who are church leaders, I doubt that there's been much intentionality put, with all, all respect, because I, I, we catch ourselves on this continually, to how we accommodating rest. Um, how are we accommodating the non-efficient, more prayerful sides? Uh, one, of, one of the interesting things is if you look at people's budgets in churches, they budget almost nothing towards prayer, even though they know it's one of their highest priorities, and vast amounts towards things like buildings, which most churches didn't even have for their first three centuries. So it's quite, it's quite interesting to look at um, how we allocate all of our resources, not just money, but time, what we teach into, uh, what uh, gift, ministry gifts we promote and recognize, and so on and so forth. 
So I've thrown lots of ideas out at you there, all around this notion of breathing in, breathing out, of engaging apostolically and then withdrawing monastically, and how might we develop rhythms in our own lives and in our churches together that are healthy and that they are combining both of these fundamental kingdom paradigms. So I'm aware it's just sort of high-level architecture, but um, let's just take a moment now to reflect and uh, I'll take, we've got sort of 15 minutes for questions, comments, and allegations. So uh, anything that's not clear, anything that you'd like to explore more, any thoughts that have been provoked by what I've said, over to you. Yeah, I mean, I'll take some holidays as well. There's a little weird times, but yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there's been some interesting studies. Any of you here who are any form of senior leadership, into if you've got a very responsible job, so a pastoral responsibility is a major um, responsibility, obviously, um, that, that sometimes you're better to, you know, a week is about the worst length of time to take a holiday for because... Um, Many senior leaders are almost addicted to adrenaline. Like what I've just done, standing in front of you, it's like an adrenaline thing. I mean, you'd have had the most boring hour of your lives if I didn't have a little bit of adrenaline. But if you're doing that stuff too much, and if, or if you're preaching on Sunday, you're into high-level you know, uh, pastoral meetings, you're conducting funerals, you're probably addicted to adrenaline. And it's why you'll go into a little bit of depression uh, a few days after stopping fairly predictably your body is norming and detoxing and and so um, quite a few big businesses now would advise their executives we would rather you took you know a, a longer holiday or just a much shorter one in which you don't basically stop you're just having fun but it's not really restorative so that's a bit of an aside but it's quite interesting I thought it gives you a good argument for having a long holiday anyway That's interesting. Yeah. 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 That's fascinating. I think with all these things, we have to give ourselves time. You know that lovely verse that says, "Keep in step with the Holy Spirit." Anyone else here ever find sometimes you're running ahead <laughs> and sometimes you're lagging behind? Mostly people quote that scripture because they're like, you know, just slow down, keep in step with the Spirit. But sometimes the Spirit is sprinting out the door, <laughs> you know. And, and, so, and so keeping, keeping that healthy rhythm and, yeah, seasons of, of rest are integral to that. Thank you. Is that what you do for a job? No. No, it's, it's, that's fascinating. What else? Comments, questions? Mm. You learn about rest and the rhythms and even reading some stuff around that you enter into it. But I think, you know, the last couple of years almost being deeply frustrated as 
a point where I thought that was an end of itself. You know what I mean? This idea that you retreat and you actually, you restore and you kind of, it almost becomes a lifestyle thing. And then I think this last three or four months, just this idea of return. And actually, just as you uh, described, actually the enemy has hemmed me in and actually isolated me in that place of rest. Even though I feel like I was restorative, I actually got to that point where I felt like I was going to explode, even though I was resting and I was, you know, you know, doing the things that you're supposed to, but actually I needed to return. It's actually part of that explosion. Otherwise, I just, I think I got a little bit disillusioned until you, you know, I guess what you're saying that just that retreat and return like Jesus did, just kind of retreating and then returning. So it's super helpful. Thank you. And I mean, you can use other analogies. The tide is an obvious one, the waves. But another one we sometimes talk about, the two legs of the gospel are intimacy and involvement. And, and it's only with both. Otherwise, <laughs> you know, hopping is just kind of clumsy. You know, and, and, and walking is nothing but controlled falling over, right? That's all it, that's all it is. We're just quite good at it. And, and, and so it is on those two legs the body of Christ walks forward, intimacy and involvement. And uh, it's hard to go anywhere without both. So whatever metaphor you use, yeah. Anyone else? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, budget on prayer is an interesting one because um, let's just take, um, let's take worship for a second. So what happened in the whenever, 30, 40, 50 years ago was... Um, what we call worship, which, we, we, by the way, <laughs> prayer and worship are basically the same thing. But we tend to mean, if we're honest, worship is music and prayer is talking, even though quite a lot of the music now is put to intercession. Um, spirit breakout, there you go. There was a bit of intercession we sang this morning. And, and then Jesus taught us to pray, presumably in words, hallowed be your name, which is worship. So it's a false divide, right? But let's just, let's just stick with the music thing for a second. What happened was um, they found a literal economy for musical worship, like licensing of songs and CDs and all that stuff. So suddenly now every church spends a vast, I want to suggest to you, amount of budget on worship. And by the way, I'm pro all that. I'm positive. I'm just about to try and make the case for prayer. So, um, you, you know, which isn't just, um, you know, buying PA kit, you know, and, and putting drum kits in and someone spending hours and hours and hours learning an instrument and learning songs, teaching the church the songs, video projectors. We just take it all for granted, right? But or, or if you're old school organs, I mean, those are expensive bits of kit. My goodness, try fixing one of those babies. So we, we put vast amounts of money into musical worship and almost none into corporate prayer. Almost none. And, uh, and so prayer languishes as a circle of plastic chairs in a drafty hall on a Wednesday night and people in the toilet position, you know, or whatever. And, uh, and, and so, uh, which is interesting to me in that, you know, the, the first person to be described in the Bible as filled with the Holy Spirit is Bezalel, right? And Bezalel was a craftsman you know, an expert in working with gold and bronze and all this kind of stuff. And his task, he was filled with the Spirit to make the place of prayer a place in which it was easy to engage with God. So I just want to suggest that we might need a little more imagination. How do we create contexts that help people to talk to God and hear God? And what might that look like? I mean, it could mean just releasing a member of staff. 
not to do your praying for you, to facilitate prayer. Um, it, 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 could, it, could, it could be building a you know, prayer room in your, with proper security systems. That's not cheap in your, in your church. It could be commissioning art. This, I could go on this hundreds of ways that if we were going to have the integrity to put our money where our mouth is in terms of our commitment to prayer. And then we wonder why people think prayer is a bit boring. Well, if we put no money, no effort, no budget, no real time or preparation into our worship, they wouldn't just think it was boring. They'd think it was horrible. So, is that okay? And then we could talk about retreats and so on and so forth. So, yeah. Yeah, retreats is, 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 is a big thing. Thomas Merton, who, you know, the Trappist monk, was once asked, what is the greatest spiritual disease afflicting the church in the West? And he said this, he said, efficiency. And one of the dangers with the way we allocate budget and actually all sorts of activities, it all has to be strategic. But actually there is something profoundly unstrategic about what we're called to do as leaders in the, in the, in the house of God, to create space for the pouring out of the perfume on the feet of Jesus. And so, you know, if you have a financial board, whatever you call it in your church structure, that is continually saying, well, how, you know, what are we getting for this money? You're going to have to do some discipleship with them about that's the wrong question. That's the right question in your work life, but it's not the wrong question in this one. I'm not saying that we waste money, but we might well spend money on, uh, you know, helping the staff retreat. Uh, Well, we might well spend money on, Art, which again might well seem rather unstrategic, all sorts of things I could talk about. Even architecture, I'd like to suggest to you that often we've become incredibly utilitarian and functional in architecture, but actually it's possible to make spaces where people become more open to an awareness of the presence of God. So we could talk more, but yeah, retreat is a key. Yeah, yeah. So we, with our staff, um, they all get um, uh, a prayer day a month. And we do put some accountability into that because we found that <laughs> it was pretty, it, was, it wasn't, it was very easy for that just to become a long weekend. Um, so we actually, we, I can tell you more, but we do put some framing on that. But it's seen as a, a you know, benefit. We have termly retreats for our staff team uh, that we would invest into. Um, we we actually were just hiring someone who's going to be our head of uh, prayer and spiritual direction, and part of her role will actually be to be there not just for the church, but actually available to our staff team for their own spiritual development. I don't suppose we're ever going to get much direct return from that significant investment, but we actually feel it's a qualitative commitment to being the kind of people we want to be. So I could go on, but those would be some of the areas of, of investment for us. One more question we got time for, I think. Yeah. Oh, it was this. Was this? No, you can have the last one. Yeah. No, no, go. Thanks.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a good question. It's why I tried to sort of put that big caveat on. I'm aware I could sound really spoilt here because I am in a privileged position in terms of this. And I do think that it's, um, you know, it probably is a case-by-case basis. So you have to teach the principles and work it out. So, for example, one of the hardest times to practice this stuff is if you're a mom of small kids. I meet so many people who say, oh, my relationship with God is terrible. And I often will say, do you have kids? And they say, I say, what age? And they tell me, I go, "Mm mm-hmm. Your relationship with God isn't terrible. You're just continually tired. You have continual niggling demands. Whenever you do get any space to yourself, um, you fall asleep <laughs> or watch casualty, you know. <laughs> and, and so one of the frustrations in that season in life, which is often a very hidden season, um, is, is uh, that your, your rhythms with God will have to be um, bite size. You know, uh, the kids are asleep for half an hour. I, I've just got a precious moment. I can put a worship track on and load the dishwasher. I mean, I was primary carer for our kids for several years. My wife is very sick. And I remember, like, going to the prayer room in the middle of the night once. Our youngest child, for his first two and a half years, never slept more than two hours. So I was just continually tired. And I remember once taking him into the prayer room. It's three in the morning, and, you know, he fell asleep in the car, you know. And so I'm, like, tiptoeing in, like, please don't wake up so I can have an hour with Jesus, you know. And then as soon as I put him down, ah! I'm like, demon child, you know. <laughs> and, and, and then I had this little epiphany. It's like, oh, he needs his nappy changed. And I'm like, okay, this is going to have to be my prayer time. So it's going to sound weird. Forgive me if this grosses anyone out. But I took it off and it stank. And I'm like confessing sin. Like, God, I'm filthy. And, you know, I'm so sorry. And, you know, forgive me. And I'm cleaning his but, and then I'm thanking God for his forgiveness and for the cross, and then he put it back on. Thank you, I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And, you know, and then he's all happy, and I'm all happy. You know. So, I mean, there is quite a strong sense in which we just have to take the tasks and make them prayerful. And then I would say that, you know, it, it, I'm just, sorry, for some reason, I'm just focusing on that one stage of life. But, I mean, for example, if you're retired, this is actually... Like, you've got a most amazing opportunity to build your life around these kind of rhythms. But let's just take that. If, if, if you've got little kids and you're married, you know, I would say that part of a husband loving his wife as Christ loves the church might well be to sometimes say, I just want to have the kids and give you some space to sit in bed and have your quiet time, and you will not be disturbed for the next half hour and whatever. And so on. So I think, I think, I think probably what I'm mostly saying is intentionality and grace, and have grace even for the season of life that you're in. If you're in a frenetic time where it's hard to do, there will come seasons when it will become easy to do again. Last question, and we just finish. Like, have you found that the effects of that have just been crazy? 
I don't find any of them scared of having an extra day off at all. Uh, but I'd like, yeah. Um, I think, you know, I mean, I, I think if we are not modeling what we're preaching, then we're hypocrites trapped in religion. It's vital that we are good news people. And part of that is walking and talking with God in the, in the cool of the evening. And, and um, so I, I do think, you know, we are called, it's true, we're called to be human beings, not human doings and all that stuff. Um, maybe I just then finish with this. It will land the, the, the seminar neatly. Is I just want to throw out to you that before there was any sin or sickness or suffering in the world, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening every day. So the question we must ask ourselves is this. What did they talk to him about? Because I suspect most of what most of us talk to God about is sin and sickness and suffering, problems. What do you talk to God about when there's no problems? It's stuff like, nice giraffe, Lord. How was your day, Father? One day there will be no more sin or sickness or suffering in the world, but there'll be you and God. So learn not just to talk to him about problems, but learn to walk and talk with him through the trivia of the day. The emails and the cappuccino and the screaming baby and the changing of the nappy. Because this is where I finish. Your prayer life is at its best, not when you pray about the big things occasionally, when you learn to pray about the details continually. Amen. Thanks.